They are in a new series, A Kingdom Upside Down. The world thinks that they are in a kingdom that is upside right, but when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that this world is in an upside down condition, and we really are the ones who are upside right. Well, today's message I've entitled From Rags to Riches, and we will be reading the first, uh, not the first three verses, but just actually the third verse of Matthew chapter five, where Jesus presents the first beatitude. Let's read it together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now everyone together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we ask that Holy Spirit, who authored this word through the mouth of Jesus, the Son of the living God, would now write this word upon our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. It was in 2007 that Dr. Anthony Campolo, some of you may recall that name, he was a very popular professor, Eastern University. He wrote a book entitled Red Letter Christians. And if you ever hear of that book, I know it's several years ago now that it came out and uh, became very, very popular, but it was written to challenge Christians to especially give attention to the red letters in their Bible. And those of us who are familiar with Scripture know that there are many, many editions of the Bible that have the words of Jesus written in red. Not only to read those words, but the challenge of this book was that we hear what Jesus had to say. Don't make that secondary. Because after we get along in Christianity and in our faith very, very often, we say, well, I, I'm graduating from the Gospels, and now I need to get into the epistles. I, I want to get into the meteor things of God's Word. Let's understand that the words of Jesus are the foundation for what the apostles taught and said. So it's very, very important for us to understand that what Jesus had to say are not just pious platitudes as so many have dubbed them as, oh, I love reading the Sermon on the Mount because it's just so poetic and it's so beautiful and we quote those verses, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Jesus came to give us the manifesto of his kingdom. These words are to be revolutionary words. These words are to radically change our lives and how we live. It's the most important body of truth given by Jesus concerning how we, who have been translated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, how we are to live our lives. What's the culture of the kingdom? What does it look like? And how are those who live in it to live their life. So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand that this is a 
both a description of kingdom citizens and also a declaration to kingdom citizens. And if you want to know what the character of the citizen of the kingdom looks like, then we need to read the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus lays that foundation in the Beatitudes. These eight words from the heart of Jesus to his disciples. Now it's very, very interesting that that term Beatitudes is not found in the Bible. But it is the familiar label that everyone calls this passage of Scripture because these eight declarations begin with the word blessed. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word which means blessedness. And that's where we get the word beatitude. Many, many modern translations always uh, translate, or often I should say translate, that word that we've read as blessed, and they change it to happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But that's not really an accurate translation of that word blessed. Because when you look at the word happy, it comes from a root word which is hap. Hap stands for happenstance, or happening. And then we determine our happiness by what happens in our life. And that's not what Jesus is speaking of. Because this is a state of mind that is not dependent upon the happenings that come your way. Let's face it, Christian friends, there are a lot of happenings that come our way that don't make us happy. And we don't feel especially blessed when they come into our life. And I think Steve Nagy could give testimony to that. When he stepped off of that plane in Florida and had that horrible accident of fracturing his foot. So that's not what makes us happy. Circumstances of life that are favorable, we say make us happy, but Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. The happiness that Jesus speaks of transcends happenings and circumstances. Now this word blessed is used 55 times in the New Testament, and it's first of all never a reference to material blessings, because that's another thing that we often get very confused. You know, when, when we're materially blessed and we get a raise and we get a new car, we get a new house, get a new suit of clothes, we say, oh, I'm blessed, I'm happy. But when Jesus used this term nine times in these verses, he is using that Greek word makarios that speaks about a deep internal joy that is independent of our circumstances. It has to do with what we are becoming on the inside as we are taking on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a blessed people. There are other translations who translate that word to be envied are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's true that those who 
are poor in spirit are superlatively happy. Because true happiness doesn't come through circumstances. It doesn't come through material blessings. It comes through when we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and communion and fellowship with him is deep and is rich and is full. And that is truly enviable. Yes. I want to be enviable, don't you? I want people to look at my life even when bad things happen and say, wow, why is he living in such peace? Why does his countenance radiate something that reminds me of deity? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's notice further that these are called the Beatitudes and not the do attitudes. In Christianity, we are so taken up so often with doing. But in gospel and in kingdom Christianity, being always precedes doing. People can't do what they are not on the inside. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. It's a facade. They must first become when we study the scripture, we come to see and to understand that character is always first and conduct will always follow. What did Jesus say? A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. Isn't it interesting that in life we so often credit ourselves and even others for what we do, what they do, rather than who we are and why we do what we do? Jesus said that on Judgment Day we will be judged not primarily because of the things that we have done, but why have we done what we've done? And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I think those are some of the most sobering words in all of Holy Scripture. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yes, at the judgment seat of Christ, the scripture teaches us that all of our works will pass through the fire. And that is only because God is judging the motivation for why we do, or why we did, I should say, the things that we did on this earth. Do we understand that we could work our heads off for Jesus and still lose our reward? Yeah if our motive was not pure in the sight of God. That is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these declarations, because the kingdom that he came to establish is always more concerned with character than it is with charisma. And that flies in the face of 
those of us who have a more charismatic mentality because we love to hear and to talk and to see more about miracles than we do about spiritual maturity that is self-effacing, about maturity that wants to hide behind the cross that only Jesus can be seen. And that even though maybe he has given us the gift of healing or miracles or faith that becomes very evident and visible to others, we recognize it's only by grace. And we exercise those gifts, not that we could be puffed up so that Jesus and Jesus alone can be glorified. Amen. Amen. In the kingdom economy, the gifts that God gives us never, ever trump character. We need to understand that Jesus came to transform us in order that why? That he might conform us to the image of his son. Isn't that what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 3.18? But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That's what our Christian life is to be all about. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Not just on Sunday morning, but every day of our life. As we spend time in the Word. As we spend time in God's presence. As we spend time in communion with God. Even in our workplace. When we're preoccupied with other things, yet in our spirit, there's a cry of God, I love your presence. I love you. You mean everything to me. The scripture tells us when those experiences are happening, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. You know what that tells me? That I've been saved, if I've been saved for 10 years, I need to be more gloriously like Jesus Christ today than I was 10 years ago. Not more gifted, not more popular, but more gloriously like Jesus Christ. What is this process? This process is a metamorphosis. We understand metamorphosis because we look at a caterpillar who is this ugly, worm-like creature that, that crawls on our plants or wherever you might find them. But we come to see that they spin a cocoon and there's a radical process of change that takes place and that in the end, when they emerge from that cocoon, they look nothing like they originally did. That cocoon for you and me is our life hid with Christ and God. That cocoon with, for you and for me is Psalm 91. We dwell in the secret place of the Most High. That cocoon for you and me is John 15. We are abiding in Him and He is abiding in us. And when we emerge from that cocoon, we are looking nothing like we looked when we first entered that cocoon because we're being transformed and we're looking more and more like Jesus Christ. The DNA that was in that caterpillar came to a full manifestation when it was transformed into a butterfly. You look at a beautiful butterfly, I mean, how do you compare that to a caterpillar? It's a radical, revolutionary, dramatic change that takes place. 
And that's God's will for each and every one of us. As we walk as kingdom people, as we live in the kingdom, as we take on the character of the kingdom, he's changing us from glory unto glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's the same word that is used in Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until, what? Christ is formed in you. Do we understand that as Christians, that is the goal of our lives? I know when it comes to Christianity, there are a bazillion things we can think of. Oh, we, we, we want to be able to read God's word more. We, we want to sp spend more time in prayer. want to be a better witness. We want to get more involved in church. We, we want to up our tithe from 10 to 15%. And all of these things are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But ultimately, it's about being more like Jesus. More like Jesus. The presence of Jesus in us is meant not only to bring an external gloss, but a radical internal transformation. I think of the transformation uh, of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his true nature was revealed. I mean, his disciples walked with him. He, he was just another man. He, he was born of the Virgin Mary. I mean, everything about Jesus was 100% human. But together with that 100% humanity was 100% divinity, deity. He was the son of God who we learned created this universe. By his word, it came into existence. But on that mount of transfiguration, that which was hidden, that which was veiled, became fully manifest and the essence of the deed of Christ was fully seen in his physical appearance as his face glowed with the brilliance of the shining sun. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with this character that he wants to change in all of us because we can only reflect Jesus when we look like him and when we act like him and when we talk like him and when we respond like him. So let's look more closely at this first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, as soon as we read this first declaration, this first beatitude, we see how Christianity is certainly forever rooted in paradox. Until you're poor, you can't be rich. Until you're a fool, you can never become wise. Until you lose your life, you can never save it. And this first beatitude is really the antithesis of how the world thinks. The world thinks, blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of this world. When you've got money, you've got power. And haven't we seen that in the world in which we live today? People with money have had the power to take away from Americans the freedom of speech. Because if you put something on Facebook that is not in agreement with their worldview, you're going to go into Facebook jail. Or you're going to be deleted from Twitter. 
And I understand that Mark Zuckerberg, I believe, gave $400 million so that he could turn the tide of the last election. This is the power that rich people have. And they think because they have the money that they have all the power, they have no understanding of the kingdom of God. Jesus shows us how the foolishness or the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God because he declares just the very opposite. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and his kingdom is worth infinitely so much more than all the kingdoms of the world put together. So let's define what does it mean to be poor in spirit. First of all, what is it not? Because sometimes it's misunderstood as what it means to be poor in spirit. It does not mean to be poor-spirited. We all know these individuals, don't we? These are those who lack courage, they have no confidence, they have no zeal or zest for life, they have no drive or enthusiasm. You find that they're always downcast, they're discouraged, they're despondent, they're depressed. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. And some people think that, oh, if I just wear this glum face, people are going to think I'm holy and I'm close to God. That countenance does not reflect the glory of God. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. And when people see us, they should experience something of the joy that Christ brings into our lives, regardless of our circumstances. Nor is it the person who is poor in this world's goods. Because sometimes we also have that idea. And the monks of yesteryear seem to have that idea too. That they could be rich if they would just take a vow of poverty. And to just hide somewhere in a cloister. Now I'm not mitigating the value of what some of them did. Some of them were some of the greatest saints that ever lived, but we can't have the idea that being poor is to be equated with being poor in spirit. There are two Greek words in the New Testament for poor. One is penos, and that describes someone who works really, really, really hard. And I know our world is full of these people, but as hard as they work, they can barely eke out an existence to survive. I guess we could call them or label them the working poor. But the other word that the Bible uses for poor is tohas, and it refers to someone who is utterly destitute. They're reduced to the status of being a helpless beggar. They are at the point of bankruptcy. They have nothing. They, have, they are just at the mercy of those who will support and help them. So here's the distinction between the two. Those who are panos are those who absolutely have nothing that is desirable or luxurious. They're barely making it by the skin of their teeth. But the tohas poor are those who have absolutely nothing. And that is who Jesus is saying are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. John Calvin identified those who are poor in spirit with these words. He said, he only who is reduced to nothing. 
I don't know about you, but that, I think that flies in the face of how we want to feel about ourselves. How we want to live our lives. How we want to always come out on top, especially in interpersonal relationships. We don't want to feel when someone said what they said to us reduced us to nothing. I mean, after all, that comes against our sense of identity and who we think we are and how we want to be projected to the world. But he who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies only on the mercy of God, that is he who is poor in spirit. In Mark chapter 7, we read an account of a woman who illustrates this point so beautifully and so powerfully. She was a Gentile. She had absolutely no authority, no right, no rhyme or reason why she could rationalize why it would be justifiable for her to go to Jesus. But she was desperate because she had a daughter who was demon-possessed. And the horror of what that daughter went through, she could not live with one more day. So she came to Jesus begging him, please, Lord, my, my daughter has a demon. Deliver her. Jesus' answer rather shocks us when he says, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. She recognized that she was seen by the Jewish people as dogs. I mean, Jewish people talk about feeling a little bit of superiority over other races. I mean, after all, they were God's chosen people. So perhaps, well, should they feel a cut above? Because God made his covenant with the children of Israel. Jesus said that I've come to the house of Israel. And how heartbreakingly sad is it that he came to his own, but his own received him not. But thank God, as many as have received him have the authority and the power and the privilege to become the sons of God. Amen. And so Jesus is, can I use the expression, playing with her to see how really poor in spirit she is. How desperate she is for God. Because if those words would have turned her away from Jesus, he would have known she wasn't really that desperate. But the Bible tells us she answered and she said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. You see, this Syrophoenician women, she had an understanding about what dogs are doing under the table. They're waiting for some crumbs to, to fall from the plates of the children who are eating at that table. And when those crumbs fall, they're devouring those crumbs. And she understood that Jesus, if you even give me a crumb, because I am so poor, I am so destitute, I am so bankrupt, I am so needy, that one little crumb from you will do just exactly what I need to have done. And my daughter will be made whole. Amen. That's exactly what happened. Because Jesus honored her faith. The hymn writer 
Augustus Telepathy expressed that kind of poverty so beautifully in that famous hymn, Rock of Ages, that unfortunately we don't sing anymore these days. Where he writes these words, nothing in my hand I bring. Why? Because I have nothing. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked. Why is he coming naked? Because he has not even any clothing. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul. Foul. Despicable. Reprobate. Dark and unclean. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. You are my only hope. You are my only hope. I come to you desperate. I come to you destitute. I have no other recourse. I have no other source but you. That's poor in spirit. And the reason why Jesus starts here is because that's where the entrance to the kingdom begins. It's the key to everything else that follows. Unless we are poor in spirit, we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven, much less inherit it. We can't get anywhere with God until this kind of foundation is laid because nothing happens until this happens. John MacArthur said it well. As long as I'm clutching on to my own self-righteousness. And that's, that's our human nature. We want to hang on. We want to cling to something that makes us feel good. We don't want to be reduced to nothing. And my own morality. Oh, I, I, I'm a good person. I, I'm not immoral. I, I don't fornicate. And I don't do adultery. And I don't do pornography. Some people think that that's their ticket to having God's favor. And as long as I'm holding on to this as if somehow I've gained access to God, and I love these words that he says, as long as my hand is full of that dirt, what does the Bible say? Our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. As long as my hand is full of that dirt, it can never receive the gold of God's grace. Oh, the blessedness of being poor in spirit. Grace is only offered to those who understand that they are poor and undeserving. We hear that and we right away think, well, I better start working because maybe if I work for it, then God's going to give it to me. Well, let, let me respond to that with the words of John Piper. It doesn't start by measuring up. It starts by realizing that we don't measure up. We are poverty-stricken, helpless as a child, and sin-sick, in need of a great physician. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Do we understand that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience that had this kind of mentality? I come from Abraham. I'm part of the covenant of God. But Jesus wants them to understand the only way you can recognize one who has come into the kingdom is by being dead.
destitute and bankrupt. I love this quote by Oswald Chambers. You can tell him a great quote. The thing I am blessed in is my poverty. Blessed in your poverty? If I know I have no strength of will, no nobility of disposition, then Jesus says, blessed are you, because I can only enter the kingdom as a complete pauper. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. So we need to ask ourselves this morning the question, am I poor in spirit? I know you've heard me use these descriptors, but how does that manifest in life? And just very, very briefly this morning, before we close this message, I want us all to take a test. Because whether or not we are poor in spirit, I believe will be known by these three evidences in our lives. The first evidence of being poor in spirit is that we are a prayerful people. And that is not saying grace before meals. That is not just rushing out the door and saying, God, you know what's before me today, bless my day, amen. That is not to say your bedtime prayers, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> Lord bless me, my wife, us four, our two children, us four, no more, amen. <laughs> when you are poor, you are always in need. Paupers are always begging because they realize that is their only means of survival. And therefore, if we are poor in spirit, we will be much before the throne of grace because we recognize it's a throne of grace. It's a throne of favor. It's a throne of mercy. And all that I have need of, God will give to me as I come to him as his humble child who recognizes God. I need you. I need you. I can't do anything without you. I am bankrupt. I am destitute. I'm reduced to nothing. An active prayer life. Because if we pray regularly and have this as our daily habit, it will be a great indication that we are poor in spirit. Because those who don't pray, they don't pray because they don't feel the need to pray. They don't recognize their neediness of God. It's not a habit in their life because they're self-reliant and they're self-sufficient and, you know, mother, I could do it myself. God, I really don't need you. I'm, I'm glad to know I'm saved. I'm glad to know I'm a Christian. I'm glad to know someday when I die or if the rapture takes place, I'm going to go to be with you. But they don't live with a sense of utter bankruptcy and need. This is the person that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. The Pharisee, did he go there to really pray? Or did he go to puff himself up and to flaunt how righteous he was? So he lifted up his head and said, God, I thank you 
that I tithe and I thank you that I'm this wonderful, wonderful, godly Jewish person that follows all the details of the law. But then on the other side of the synagogue, there was this tax collector who we know were cheats. They were evil people. But this is the man who was destitute and bankrupt and recognized his utter sinfulness and recognized his need for God. And he could not as much as even lift his head, but he smote upon his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, who went home justified that day? Not the self-righteous Pharisee was patting himself on the shoulder because everyone looked up to him. He was the religious aristocracy. He followed the law. He, he, did, he did. He followed the book. With his mouth, but his heart was far from God. And so that leads us to the second thing, that if we are poor in spirit, we are penitential like the tax collector. Because those who are poor in spirit continue to find more reasons to walk in repentance because they continue to see sin in their lives. And that is not to say that they sin more, but rather they are becoming more aware of sin. If we are not growing in our awareness of the sinful nature that John Owen called indwelling sin. As long as we are in this flesh, there will always be a penchant, a propensity, a proclivity to do that which dishonors God. And just let someone push the right trigger and you'll find it popping up. But as we are poor in spirit, we will walk in such a way that we realize, oh God, that's ugly. You know, maybe when we first got saved, we just glossed it over. That's just, that's just who I am. That's because of how I was raised. I can't help it. But as you continue to grow in God and in his grace, as it continues to move on you by his spirit and perfect you, you come to see your utter sinfulness. Look at Isaiah, the prophet of God. When he was confronted with the holiness of God, he cried out, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I need the fire of God's holiness to come and purge away my sin. You know, some of the greatest saints that have ever lived, and I, I love reading biographies, especially of those men and women who really walked with God. I find there is one thing that is outstanding concerning their character, and that is they walked in a deep repentance. They were penitential. They understood the fallenness of their nature. And every day of their lives, they came before God. They knelt before the cross in recognition that I must be crucified at that cross because I know that in me, in this flesh, there dwells no good thing. That's being poor in spirit. The 
third test is that we possess nothing. And this again flies in the face of the American mentality. That's mine. That's mine. You owe me this. I deserve that. Grab as much as we can for ourselves. But when we are poor in spirit, this is how A.W. Tozer explains it, the blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing, now listen to this next line, and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing. What's yours? What does the scripture say? What does a man have that was not given to him by God? Mm. We have this idea that I worked for that. Well, who gave you the strength and the wisdom so that you could work for that? The great mystic Fenelon reinforced that reality in these words, blessed are they who are stripped of everything, even of their own wills. See, it's, it's not only material things that we say, God, you know, you, you, you gave that to me, now I'm a steward of it. We're not owners, we're stewards. Do you realize that everything that we have in life is a stewardship that has been entrusted to us? You know, we get our paycheck and that's mine. I, I worked hard for that all week long. Now I can spend it just as I like. That's not kingdom Christianity. Yeah. Kingdom Christianity is the first 10% of that belongs to God. Yeah. Amen. Those of you who want to say, oh, that's Old Testament. If you want to study the Old Testament, they were required to give more than 10%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so don't complain about what God requires of us now. But it's not about fulfilling a legal obligation that if I'm going to be a good Christian, I need to tithe. Tithe means 10%. No. But Lord, because you've so blessed me, you've been so good to me, you've been so gracious to me, how can I not give you graciously this 10% with a grateful heart? And God says, if you are faithful to me in giving me that 10%, then I'm going to make that 90% that I've allowed you to keep to stretch and to meet all your needs and to do above and beyond. Amen. Those of us who are tithers, I want to hear a loud amen. Amen. Be true in every man a liar. God has never failed. Being faithful to him, he is not, will not be any man's debtor. Well, I'm concluding with what Jesus said after he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'm going to do this very, very quickly. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the greatest rags to riches story that has ever been told. I mean, naked. Not even rags. Naked. Being reduced to nothing. Jesus says, when you come to that place in your life, you will have the kingdom of God. It's not given to those who are spiritually self-sufficient, to those who walk around with their big Bibles and know the Bible from cover to cover. Would you believe I got a 13-page letter from someone this week 
refuting something that they feel I believe differently than they do. 13 pages. You know, knowledge puffs up, but love reduces itself to nothing so that it may build up. God's calling us to build up in love. And sometimes that means that we reduce ourselves to nothing. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Yes, he did. He says, when you do that, when you're really poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this is something that I, I never saw as I read the Beatitudes, I don't know how many times, but as I was preparing for this message, I realized something that Jesus is saying, this is not something you're going to get in the future. I know the kingdom is now, but the kingdom is also coming. So we have a foretaste of it, and the revelation of it continues to grow. Where Jesus is, is the kingdom of God. But the day is coming when we are going to dwell in that literal kingdom forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Yes, hallelujah. But Jesus is saying, today, right now, yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first beatitude. It's also the last one. All the others are future. They shall be comforted. They shall. Sometime in the future. You do this, and in the future you shall. You shall be filled. You shall see God. They're all the promises of God, and they will surely come to pass in his time, in his way. But when we are poor in spirit, Jesus is saying the revelation of the kingdom is yours here and now. Are we poor in spirit? I was thinking about the three things that I said should be the test. Are we living lives where we're praying more, where we're repenting more, where we're surrendering more? Praying more, drawing closer to God in prayer, repenting more with a contrite heart and a broken spirit. God delights in that. And that's not to make, oh, this, this really troubles me because some Christians, when they hear this, they, they feel condemned and they feel shame and guilt God's conviction of his spirit is never to shame us, is never to guilt us, but to cause us to see who we are before him. So needy, but his abundant grace. He wants to lavish upon us that we arise from that place of repentance and contrition and we feel the blessing and the peace and the presence of God because the scripture says blessed is the man whose transgression is covered the blood of Jesus washes it all away there's no guilt, there's no shame it's just redemption and we recognize that we're accepted in the beloved and God loves us and he draws us closer and closer and closer to his heart and we feel and know that intimacy in a growing measure with Jesus as we walk and we talk with him. And then thirdly, as we surrender all that I am, all that I have, all I will ever be, and not only things, but I surrender my will. I surrender my mind. 
I surrender my emotions. God, I want you to live your life in and through me because in myself, I can't. I can never please you. I can never do it right. But when you come in, when the kingdom of God comes in to us, the king upon his throne, and upon the throne of our hearts, we can then live a life that is pleasing to God. Let's bow our heads.